Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Caw, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my glorious quartet, the one, the only, wait for it, DJ! I was waiting on pins and needles to get to this wizard in glass because Rachel has pumped it up so much as being the book that we want to get to. And then we get to it, and we're both like, ooh, this is... we'll get into that let's 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 start with our plan for the week okay (laughs) all right so we are starting a new book as you mentioned wizard and glass it's happening the book we have been building toward because it's one one of the ones i remember the least so we're going to do an in-depth conversation about wizard and glass prologue part one uh, chapter one beneath the demon moon and chapter two the the falls of the hounds (laughs) (laughs) which is like he gave him very exciting titles but uh yeah i will argue that the falls are actually pretty cool but we'll get there we'll get there all right which by the way dj before we go much further can you do me a solid and remind our listeners of our spoiler policy Uh, listen guys if you haven't read the the first round of books before this um the prologue is a complete spoiler for all of them so (laughs) fyi you're just gonna get all that plus we will go to chapter two and then we will stop solid and yes. not talk about any sort of thing that might lead you to figure out the puzzle of what they could possibly provide to trick Blaine with. And that is all I'll say. Oh, you think it's going to be a trick, huh? They're not going to just win fair and square? Spoilers! Spoilers! Is that a song? Oh, <laughs> no, it, no, just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> these these riddles you know we're just we're leaving them in the podcast now to riddle around with you right? so. because i want to like i want like people to go full conspiracy nut like think that like we're like stanley kubricking you know what i mean oh, like there's no. all these things and you're like no really this is all just a conspiracy about the like moon landing we're like uh, uh what's that uh um dream within a dream within a dream inceptioning yes all right. So, DJ, we've already alluded to a little, we've tipped our hand a little bit about how we're feeling about this, but let's go ahead and get into our synopsis. Uh, normally, okay. I would say, where did we leave off? But I think it's better in this case to just skip straight to the prologue where did we because, begin? because it's the same thing. So, um, I'm going to, I'm going to really blaze through this, guys. The uh, prologue. And Rachel, feel like, feel free to stop me if there's anything you want to point out but yep. uh, basically Stephen King lightly punches across the last few books we we start with a little recap of Roland running through the wastelands and uh, fighting the man in black tossing Jake out mm-hmm. uh, leading on to the lobstrosities getting sick going through the drawers uh, there's a the little pit stop where you know uh, Roland throws himself under the train because they don't want that particular drawing to come with them uh, saves Jake and then Jake through the thing and into the house and then Roland and the team kill <laughs> Shardik the bear aka not Shardik the bear I'm sorry Rachel what was the other name Mir Mir yep and so oddly like Stephen King stops there to give you that recap which I actually maybe I mean, is why it's reinforced the bear in my brain so much and Shardik is such an important character even though he lasts what two chapters yeah I mean I would assume that we're getting this very in-depth recap because it in in terms of the the timeline of when these were published there was a big gap between these two and like 
in addition to that, like Stephen King went through a massive life change between the end of Wasteland and um, was this after he got hit by the uh, bus? So he got sober and he got hit by the van in the interim between these two books. I did not realize that was how it went down. Yes. So I think a lot of this recappy stuff that is a little frustrating when we're reading it is be- simply because we are fresh off those things. So like, you know, it's like when you're, when you're uh, marathoning a TV show and they're like previously on, you're like, I already know I was just there. <laughs> like that's essentially what, <laughs> what is happening with this pre with this. Well, this is like the argument or whatever. So, like, how am I going to create a bestseller if someone has to go back 15 years to find uh, the other things? I feel this? like it's a courtesy chapter. Like, for people who don't, who aren't listening to a recap podcast, you know, who haven't read it in 10 <laughs> years or or five years, whatever it was, the gap between them, probably, like, appreciated the refresher. So what's interesting, though, is the prelogue itself. Um, I, I was listening to it, and I was like, wait, there were a couple things that just, like, stood out to me as a little bit odd. And I pulled up the last chapter of the wastelands and the prologue of wizard and glass. And even though it's almost verbatim, the last chapter of wastelands, there are a handful of moments where there's things added, subtracted, things just sort of change. Like, I guess what I'm wondering is in these sections, because like Stephen King, it looked, he clearly like copy pasted from the last book and then went through and revised it. And I want to know if you have any thoughts on why, what do you think about that? Uh, so to me personally, it felt like he was laying the groundwork for after chapter two that we won't cover today. Um, uh, because like Stephen King maybe didn't provide enough information to write himself out of the trap that he'd left himself (laughs) previously. (laughs) And so the revisionism of this was like a prelude to make the things that he was going to use to solve said problem make more sense Mm -hmm. in the structure of this. And so that's all I got from that. (laughs) All right, let's get into the first chapter because there's not really a ton to say about the prologue. Okay. So, uh, you know, basically uh, we got the whole history all the way up to our current point where they're hanging out with Blaine on the train um and this snake on a train uh we don't actually get to see him in the very very first bit because instead we get painted a small beautiful picture of candleton Mm -hmm. this little town that was most likely a stop on the path of blaine on his eight and 45 eight hour and 45 minute trip across the wastelands to uh topeka kansas and this little town has like a robot that used to handle tickets. It's kind of wandering around. There's mm-hmm. creatures crawling around, some beetles the size of turtles wandering about. The town is dilapidated, but the uh, stainless steel robots kind of wander in and out as though they are still performing their tasks with bad joints and like rough bits. Mm-hmm. The The town in general, like feels like the radiation is sort of, uh, cooked everything up and Stephen King takes a moment to like sort of talk about the people at this train station in the bar as though they, these like they're skeletons now, obviously, because you know, whatever happened there, like killed them in yeah. place. But he sort of like, you know, skeletons, if you ever see the skull, it sort of has like a weird smirky smile to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so Stephen King kind of paints them as this fun, weird group of like yeah. dead folks hanging out at the bar smiling while these other creatures and, and mutants and like 
slow muties like wander about the uh, area, like just kind of eating each other and carrying their intestines about. I, I think there's even like a really specific description yeah. of a rat yeah. c- carrying its own intestines behind it as it wanders through. And, and sort of this like strange bit uh, about a, a deer. And, and this is interesting because like uh, it kind of cuts back to uh, earlier when we were talking about threaded stock and like mm-hmm. the mutants and so on. And there's this like sort of like historical painting of this deer. At first, it like wanders up. It has like a, a third leg hanging out of its stomach, and it's like pretty mutated and gross. But then Stephen King kind of paints this happy picture of how like this deer's been getting it on with other deer and like <laughs> making like kind of regular babies, uh-huh. and like two out of the three turned out good. One just like screamed until uh, it was killed by its sire, and it's just like a really strange, yeah, like bit. And then like so we get this entire painting of the town, the robots. The robot's like talking, you know, there's like a, a metallic warning that's that keeps going off. It's saying like the radiation levels are high and like the the deer and it's like little family, the rat, the the robot, yeah. like talking with a southern accent for some reason. And then we get this like weird bit where the train just flies by them at like <laughs> low level and wipes everybody out, just destroys the crap out of all of this like yep. slowly coming together life. And and as as Blaine is flying by, like the tail light of Blaine is just this red glowing evil yeah. eye <laughs> staring back at the place. And this is followed up. By of course, you know, uh, well, a train that's let's going. Let's stop real quick before oh, yeah, we I'm move sorry. on. No, I'm it's moving it's, fast. That's fine. This... I, you are the Blaine of this podcast. <laughs> Eight hundred miles an hour. Okay, so before we go too much further, I just have a couple little things I want to point out about this opening section because I actually really liked this. This little weird, pra- like this little interlude. It's good, it's just so out of place. I like, know. I kind of like it though. You're like, you're like, okay, th- what you're doing here is good. I could go for like three more chapters of this, and instead it's just like wham and gone. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of it again comes back to this idea that we have been out of this universe for several years at this point when this is released. So this chapter, this little section actually kind of like reestablishes the world for us. I mean, it closes by showing us like how powerful and how much trouble our protagonists are in inside of this freaking train, right? But I also like that Stephen King's place setting, right? He's dropping us back in this world. He doesn't ease us back into it. He just, like, drops us into this, like, mutated town with all these horrific creatures crawling around, like you said, like a rat crawling around, pulling its pulling own its own intestines. It's disgusting. But also, kind we get fun, these... Though. Yeah, definitely. I mean, listen, I like Stephen King because I want to be grossed out. But also, we are getting introduced to this idea that there's these robots that are kind of like service robots cruising around. I mean, we have Blaine and we've had Shardick, but this is our first domestic robot and so it's it's giving us a bitter bigger picture of the world in wasteland and it also kind of reorients us away from the like high fantasy stuff that we were kind of beginning to deal with in primarily in the wastelands and recentering it back on this weird western like where we have this robot that's like hey pard you know like his southern draw <laughs> and you picture this little western frontier like town and so 
one of the things that I kind of missed as we moved into these weird fantasy lands, which were also very cool, but I kind of missed that original weird Western that we had with the first book. And I kind of feel like this is Stephen King, because even in the argument at the book, he at the beginning of the book, he talks a lot a bit about the, the origin of these books. When he wrote them when he was 19, he was sitting in a movie theater watching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and he was like, I want to write this epic. And so I think he this is him kind of getting back to those roots. So, so I, I, I did enjoy that about this section. Um, I also feel like anytime we get some world building, I'm always very interested in that. Like we're finding about out about what, obviously more about what the effects of this cataclysmic event were. But we also get to see with the dough how life is coming back. And so, seeing how life the the world is beginning to heal itself, it's this message of hope that like if Roland is actually successful in doing whatever he has to do. As much as the world has moved on, there's still hope for healing in this world. Of course, it gets literally torn away by Blaine when he goes tearing by. But the point <laughs> is, the idea is there, <laughs> provided he can get over that. The other thing is, is, he drops this one little tantalizing tidbit. And I tried Googling this, but I couldn't find anything. And one of the things that the robot says is that there's, you know, elevated radiation. And then he also talks about DEP3. Which I have yeah, no idea what that I is. I heard that and I don't know what it is. But what I can tell you – and let's focus in on the robots for a second. Yeah, because, yeah. I do like the um, robots. One of the things I, I wanted to bring up for this, and um, and you've led me right to it, so thank you, is that – Teamwork we, makes the dream work. <laughs> we learned earlier, <laughs> like in the previous book, that as Blaine is you know doing his thing and whatever, that he's basically been like cutting off little sections of himself – and like getting rid of the other parts mm-hmm. of Blaine. Yeah. Well, if you think about this town as a stop that no no longer is is visited by Blaine, and you wonder like, well, what happened to the other bits of AI or whatever we want to describe them as mm-hmm. uh, of Blaine that were parts of the service and so on? Yeah. You know, this town and the robots therein, uh, to me, represents a section of Blaine's interior ego that has been dropped in released and left for dead mm. i can see how area. they would be like integrated right because it's one of the stops on his exactly so it'd be part of a larger kind of and if you yeah. like if you remember the the back and forth with uh, baby blaine and blaine himself you mm-hmm. know between the two characters we we got this story sort of painted of blaine jettisoning jettisoning all these other bits of his his internal program or part of him or the mm-hmm. others whatever you want to define those as or segregate them as and this town is like a perfect representation of that with the master infected version of blaine uh left away from his individual pieces that are now mm. like left out in the desert they are less evil and therefore less dangerous to the town and uh less affecting of the town itself and and so to me, and maybe I'm wrong and I'm reaching for straws because th- these two chapters weren't the most riveting for me, uh, is that Blaine uh, being gone from the town uh, was part of the ability for the town to heal itself. Hmm. Interesting. I and, do, and maybe that's a reach. I don't know. I don't, well, I mean, here's the thing. I don't know. I, I have to like kind of think, sit with that a little bit longer. But I will say one piece of evidence in your favor is that like – the fact that he was connected to another part of him, like you could argue that another part of himself was Patricia. Like they were individuals, like that robot, the like part robot is its mm-hmm. own individual thing, but they're interconnected. They're like networked. And so like 
yeah, maybe maybe in some ways it was a part of the larger Blaine network. I and don't that's know. the part that I'm I'm a little not sure of is because mm-hmm. I, I haven't really thought about the Blaine and the distance from you know the city right. that uh, causes him to like lose lose time basically as the communications get further and further away. Yeah, and and, and so I don't know how that would apply to the town. And I'm maybe I'm reaching too far, and mm-hmm. Patricia is the, what we were really supposed to focus on, not these smaller ancillary robots. So I mean, the thing is, is like part so much of this is still like shrouded in mystery that it invites you to kind of go guess, there. Yeah. yeah, and and that's honestly part of the fun, right? Well, so. and then one other thing I wanted to bring up while we're we're on this little section and. I don't know if you you have two stars here, so I maybe jump into that. Uh, but Stephen King also spends a little bit of time like focusing on the moon. Yes. Oh, that's a good thing that you brought up. Um, it's the demon moon, right? Which I'm guessing yes. is. I mean, having looked is at that the a chapter, reference to something else that I don't know of? Because like, no, I it think felt it's... like he was almost trying to tell me like, hey, remember this other time I told you about this moon thing? You know, but I couldn't recall. I, I believe it's in reverse. So they're introducing the demon moon that will come up later in the book. Ah, uh, okay, okay, yeah. But I do like that this is all taking place under the inauspicious moon it helps to raise the stakes a little bit you don't even want to look at this moon because it's bad luck and here they are in the battle of their life under this moon Uh, as the train devastates this entire little town of you know slow mutes and like threaded stock and so on and the robots in the corner wear themselves out and like die for the last time make their last statement the train flies by at 800 plus miles an hour mm-hmm. and as a thing traveling faster than the speed of sound the initial wave of the train causes its own form of damage which reacts basically faster than any of the creatures can handle it mm-hmm. and but then the secondary wave yeah. which is the sonic boom which basically infers here that blaine has always in the past eight years ago when he traveled last has stopped in these places and not just flown through them right Uh, they're not designed for this like his destruction path doesn't just leave the or you know stay in the city of lud he's wrecking everything as they go with these sonic booms so he's intentionally destroying whatever's left of this this track and trail as a final motion you know you're totally right i had not put that together i had a note here like wow blaine is really tearing up the town but i it had not occurred to me what the implication of that was that he's he's because he's not stopping he's intentionally taking all this yeah out. and blaine is basically destroying everything in his yeah. path as he continues down this and that's that's important to me because he didn't just take out the city yeah he's like He's on a rampage yeah. to end himself and everything that is associated. Yeah, with- I didn't. I guess I did not understand like the full degree of his murder suicide action here. <laughs> All right, so back on the train. Okay. Um, Blaine doesn't have a face. Um, he's he's a voice. So there's basically like the map display that we heard about in the previous book is sort of like the description of where they're at. Um, they can see what towns are coming up on the map. So they they basically like ask Blaine to step away for a moment. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, Eddie is sort of like sarcastic a little bit about this. Um, and sure enough, Blaine's like, okay, he's like actually sort of like 
enthusiastic and excited right. to to get this game on. And so he literally plays the like doting child that's tasked with being the count to 100 kid mm-hmm. in the hide and go seek or the Marco Polo game and ducks out and gives the gang their own free time to basically figure out what they're going to do. And, and so during this moment, the weight of this riddle book in Jake's hand is sort of like weighing on him. And he's it's sort of like hot potato. He wants to get, get it off his hand. And Oi like does this weird, but interesting thing of like yeah. reaching out and handing roll in the book. And to me, I, I, the reason I, I specifically mentioned that bit is because that felt like a shift that with Oi and Roland going through their previous experience mm-hmm. and, Roland almost putting him out on the chopping block (laughs) that Oi has, has sort of still like grown to have faith in Roland as a, I kind of took it as that he was extremely protective of Jake and he is very in tune with Jake. Jake didn't want the, like the sort of like psychological or like psychic weight of having the responsibility of this book. And I think Oi picked up on that because like he, he literally takes it out of Jake's hand and like tries to give it to Roland. (laughs) There's a lot of actually in this section. One of the best things about this section is we have a handful of these very subtle character moments centered around Jake where each of them kind of is a caretaker to Jake and Oi is the first one with the handing off of this book. Yeah, there, or so there's there's that moment there and then Eddie starts to talk and and Roland stops him and sort of like almost like backhandedly insults him and Eddie yeah. takes this really to heart. It's a yeah. it's it's sort of a bit where he's like, you know, don't joke around and don't be foolish. The time for that's over, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and and he's like, well, wait a minute, wait, a minute. you know, uh, I'm not foolish all the time. And then it like stings deep because, yeah. you know, the, the hardest burns are the the ones that are true. Yeah. And, and Eddie <laughs> just like really feels this. And and I'll, I'll stop there for a second because you've got two two stars here. So yeah. I don't want to jump over anything. Well, I mean, I, that's a great segue. I mean, I think this moment with poor Eddie, both Blaine and and Roland completely admonish him for joking around they're dismissive of him and there's just sort of this general assumption that he has nothing to offer which is very wounding to eddie because we had all of this last book where some of that was happening and eddie's response was not just only to be hurt but he was like actually pretty angry about the way that roland is treating him and then they had this reset where they met again on the train station and it seemed like their relationship had entered a new phase there was a lot of affection a lot of familial bonds and so they when they set foot on this train and it goes back to mocking or dismissing eddie i think probably that hurts so it felt to me like have you ever been at a party and there's that guy that just wants to talk to everybody yeah. but everybody just wants to shrug him off yeah and he's always like super awkward and lonely but is trying to trying so hard trying so hard and it's almost as though it's like a vicious cycle where the harder he tries the worse things go for him yeah. and like it continues to like pile in on itself i, I feel like that's how they're treating eddie in oh, this yeah. pos- position is like He's like the show meal. Like, like yeah, we don't even need your your joking around here. And like Roland's like, it's not time for your type of thing. You know, it's it's very 
It's very harsh. Like, yeah, I, I totally know what you mean. Like, I, I just felt bad for Eddie because I felt like we had entered a new phase at the end of the last book. I was like, finally, dude, finally, you're gonna get some respect. Oh no, everybody, even the train is making fun of you. <laughs> and like, and like, Susanna's annoyed with him as we go for a war, war, war. I'm getting a little bit ahead, but like, the only person that's not giving him shit is Jake and Oi. The other thing I thought was interesting is that our first point of view character in this book is Susanna. In fact, we never get a Roland point of view moment in any of these sections that we're gonna go through. She She's the first one we we get in her head and she's like assessing the situation. Blaine may potentially be even more dangerous if they beat him. And so she's very wary. She's kind of playing the Roland role a little bit, which is interesting. Well, do you think some of this arises from like the deep dive that we got at the very end of the previous book where she was starting to like uh, come up into her own of, of feeling and sensing and, uh, you know, shining? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I do, but I also think it's interesting that Stephen King has decided to prioritize Continue. this. Yeah. Um, as opposed to like his original hero and like kind of proxy. It's just interesting. And it's something that we'll talk about, I think, a little bit as we go forward. Basically, so uh getting back on track here. So the gang has a uh, um Blaine kind of secloistered and they're they're having this discussion and they they basically decide like okay we need to test the waters to figure out if we can find a vulnerability in his thinking and his perception and roland brings up a really interesting point and says that you know this isn't just about the answer it's about the question and this is even reflected in the fact that the uh book that jake got from mr tower yeah doesn't have answers that's a very good point i had not picked that up you're right they aren't even concerned that they don't have the answer because they're almost certain and roland in particular is almost certain that this machine is gonna have answers to most of the common riddles that are available and so what they start with is basically roland's plan is to uh, uh sort of cite out the the field so to speak by assigning them an easy a medium and a hard riddle to give to blaine and see how he reacts mm. and and so uh, this is kind of like again some more eddie bashing but like, i know but basically you know like uh uh susanna has one and it's like uh, something about uh flies and wheels and it, it turns out it's like a trash collector you know blaine uses a particular thing and there's a moment where and I, i'm skipping past the riddles because they're not as important as no. the reaction to the riddles uh and these are a lot of these are ones we've heard before um but uh, the reaction after blaine basically guesses a, a garbage wagon is is susanna tries to mirror the motion that he she remembers roland doing to the elderly lady in the town before Lud. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that these guys have hand motions that are male and female. Yeah, it's a good little and, bit of world building here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the interesting fact is that uh, uh, Blaine, like, kind of cackles and giggles a little bit. Yeah. And is like, well, I, you know, that's very nice and touching of you, but actually I identify as a male. <laughs> and, <laughs> and as our as as our times and, and where we're at in the world goes, I I kind of got a little bit of a chuckle out I of it. I know. Like, like my pronouns are he and him. Thank you. I, I am a pink giant phallic symbol and I will also <laughs> let you know that I identify as a man. Okay. Got it. All right, you do you boo. <laughs> and, and so there's there's like a, a difference, I guess if you're a, a female you 
you touch your throat. Yeah. But if you're a male, you touch your breastbone. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it'll come up as we get back into a part of the book where that kind of culture is more prevalent. But I, if not, even just on its own, I love these little, just little dibs and dribs and drabs of world building that Stephen King just sort of seeds throughout. So the other other thing I want to point out here is that Roland is very specific about the etiquette that is required yes, I'm glad you for this, this riddle mm-hmm. system. And this little note right here is one of them. But also, uh, early on, Roland like kind of whispers back. He's like, Susanna, it's okay if you don't walk forward because you don't have legs. <laughs> uh, but everybody else, please step forward because that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And you need to say thank you, Sai, and, and, and so on. Like He has like a very specific rhythm of things that, that need to happen mm-hmm. for this to happen properly. And Blaine, like I don't know if he – he knows about this because it sort of seemed like it was a surprise to him, but he latches on to it. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, yeah, this is exactly, I I need my respect. This is how Mm -hmm. things should roll. Mm -hmm. And so the gang basically like rolls through these jokes, you know, um, and they finally get to Eddie and, or not jokes, excuse me, um, riddles. and, And they get to Eddie and Eddie thinks he's got like a good one. Oh, you know, bless. he's like, he's like uh, sort of in the back of his mind. He's thinking like, this is going to be the one that just puts it down. Like, there's not going to be any more riddling after this. I'm going to stump him with this one because this one stumps me. And bam, that's it. <laughs> so Eddie, like everybody else is following the, the proper uh, a structure. They're stepping forward. They're asking their question, you know, and, and saying thank you side and backing up. But Eddie rolls in and he's like, "Hey, Blaine, buddy, what's going on?" You know, yeah, typical <laughs> like, Eddie. And and Blaine just doesn't respond. Yeah, it is like it's literally the party awkward silence I was describing <laughs> earlier. Yeah, <laughs> and, and Eddie's like, "Well, uh, are are you there?" He's like, of course I'm there. I'm just not going to respond to your stupid childish banter. Oh my god! And like, which Eddie's is like, rich coming from Blaine. I know this like a crazy train uh, who's who was just like about- oh it was just like talking about olive oil or canola like yeah I mean exactly. that's been his that has been his energy this whole time but he finds it extremely insulting when he gets it's like a room full of comedians and the one guy's not the funniest guy and everybody else is like piling on him to tell me stupid yeah yeah uh so like uh, he comes up and i will actually give you this one it was it was in no cert no sooner spoken than broken what am i and and blaine doesn't even like doesn't even miss a beat like in the other ones like he pretends to click this one he just dead lays it out he's like it's like he's like flicking him away with yeah and like eddie is completely heartbroken by this and like he sort of gets a thing from this at the same time like blaine basically does not appreciate eddie's sense of humor and everybody else in this group also seems to not appreciate eddie's humor i know but that's interesting because it's Blaine a trigger basi- for him. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically able to take anything else, any other approach, but Eddie's approach, he immediately has disdain for. Mm, that is interesting. So I want to quickly go back to Roland with the ritual of riddling. As he took pains to explain all the steps, I'm like, okay, what are we doing here? And I think it's a couple of things. On one hand, it is Roland has great gravity around riddling. And I think some of it is just him showing respect to his culture, but also using that as a tool to manipulate 
and maybe flatter blame. But I also kind of felt like he was almost making sure that everything is done exactly by the book so that if they are successful in stumping Blaine, who Eddie has called slippery, he can't really weasel out of the deal on a technicality. Uh, ah. Is what I where I think Roland's head is at with some of this was my takeaway okay. from that. Um, well, and you're you're right. I think uh, doesn't little Blaine pop in somewhere? Yes, and I actually little Blaine comes in and he's just like constantly warning them, like, "Oh, don't make him mad. Don't ask questions." Oh, but I'm kind of yeah. like, you know, that we're barreling towards a suicide, right? So what is the what is the point of little blame with this is he just cowardice personified or is there some part of blaine that is represented by little blaine where maybe he doesn't want to die or he hopes they'll succeed i don't know what do you think well little blaine um one of the the statements he he makes is that like the the tracks are already rough and the stabilizers are working at the maximum whatever. And, uh, you know, they're, they're really redlining on everything. And I thought to me, that was like, it was basically again, drawing the line to separate Blaine from his internal parts in that like little Blaine was its own creature and really doesn't want to die Uh and has a full grasp of like, what the exterior of the situation looks like as far as the train operating and moving and so on. And Blaine has not conveyed any of this information to his passengers other than to like beleaguerly, you know, turn the lights or turn the screens on and off and, you know, open the cabin, not open the cabin and so on. It's like, it's not, he's not showing them how much danger they're actually in. And for me, Little Blaine was a vehicle for Stephen King to be like, hey, guys, on top right. of battling yes. with this crazy train, mm-hmm. you're also battling with this crazy train who's doing crazy stuff that you don't even realize how crazy it is. Yep, 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 yep. I think you're right. Yep, yep. That makes sense and, to and me. And so, I, like, because at first I was like, this is superfluous, Little Blaine. You're, what are you doing? But it's a tension riser, and we've yep. already established that Little Blaine is his own thing. So then to use Little Blaine as like a – I don't want to die, guys. Yeah. It's like, what's going on there? <laughs> okay, so when we make the movie, you have officially been cast as the voice of Little Blaine. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, that actually helps me. I think you're right. I think he is a tension device. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and that, that's what it felt like to me. And yep. and, and so the, the gang is like, they've thrown out their questions. They've been beat up a bit by him. Uh, you know, they... They basically, like, he answers them all. They ask him to go away again. They get the little, like, uh, voice prompt from the the uh, little baby Blaine. Mm-hmm. And then, like, Eddie sort of has this internal moment where he's, like, thinking about his brother. Yeah, this is where he responds to Roland with the a line from the credo. Where he's just yeah. like, I shoot with my mind. And Roland's like, yes, do that. Brainstorm. Go over there. Yeah, and, like, this... This beating up on Eddie is sort of like giving him a little bit of, of shame, but like there's a moment where they mention Eddie's brother and like how Eddie yeah. would come up with a joke that was so harsh that you know there wasn't really a response right from anybody around him. Yeah, and th- that is a very specific call and mm, reference it is indeed mm, that's a, mm. a thing to underline a couple times yeah 
Yeah, definitely. Something just in the back of the mind, in the back. Speaking of back of the mind, like very, very appropriate for what we're going to be talking about with Eddie. His little comment here is such a great reminder that the gunslinger's arsenal is far deeper, more vast, more diverse than just the bullets in their holsters or whatever you keep a bullet in. Mm -hmm. Their bandoliers. I don't know. What do people keep bullets in? (laughs) (laughs) But my point is, is like, I I think this is a, a great reminder of, of how complex a gunslinger is that like one of his greatest tools actually is mind. I think it's really great. The other thing we have here in this scene here is that Roland does something totally uncharacteristic, which is he appears he to like, lose hope. Oh. Yeah. He has like a moment where his face loses gunslingerness and mm-hmm. like, and looks a little bit desperate for a second. And there's this nice metaphor where they like very quickly cut to the sculpture, the sculpture of Roland that is melted <laughs> yeah. and is unrecognizable. And I was just like, geez, Louise, like that's pretty emblematic of kind of Roland's confidence and where he's at right now. It's like totally unrecognizable. And mm-hmm. something we've talked about over the course of these books is this evolution of the Roland character in terms of his character arc, but also in terms of the way that I think Stephen King views him. And I'm like, oh, is this another reset of this character where suddenly he's someone who could despair? This is because I don't think we ever saw even when he was almost dying on the beach, he was going to go and go and go. And he, I don't know that he ever gave up hope. So for him to have asked Blaine for riddles and lose hope does that feel like Roland to you what do you think about this change in his character uh well the issue for me is that this is like a database of all of midworld and all of earth and all of the other worlds that blaine connects to so Roland, not being a dumb guy grasps that this machine may very well have ingested every possible riddle that Mm -hmm. was ever available and knowing that it's stored in his memory banks means that they have to come up with something brand new on the spot. And that's a daunting task for something because uh, Roland even, he even takes a moment to say like, not only does he understand how riddles work, but he understands the mindset of the riddle maker. Mm -hmm. And, and that's like a, a scary like court thing. And we even got a little like peppering of court with the description of, you know, how the riddle system works and like Blaine being like, well, I wish that guy was here because maybe he could have actually stumped me, which in turn is basically saying like, I don't think you guys stand a chance, but I'm humoring you because I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. I mean, I don't, it's not that I don't totally get where Roland is coming from. Like I would be in the state of extreme despair. I just don't know that it feels he like flickered. I don't know that it feels like the character of Roland that we have known henceforth. Maybe it, it's for me, it's a little weird because he's like bouncing back and forth be- between being mean to Eddie and then being hopeful and Eddie having an idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so like, you're not really sure. Like, are you bad mouthing the guy? Or are you expecting him to save the day? You know? And like, Roland doesn't quite settle on either one of those things. Yeah, I don't know. It just feels, I don't know. It's not a big deal. It's just a small moment, but I just felt like it didn't seem like the Roland that we know it. Considering the just absolute mind boggling difficulty of his quest for him to hit a stumbling block and be like, and despair. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, huh? Really? It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. I just, I just felt like it was an out of character moment unless he's changing. 
I don't know. I have to go further on. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Definitely. This before I can, I can say it either way. Cause fair, fair. It, it, it's hard. Sometimes you think like Stephen King's evolving a character and really he just like flubbed a little bit. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I think maybe, I think you're right. Like, let's just keep an eye on this and, and track and see if this is a new phase of his character or if this is just like you said, like a little brain fart. So basically the, the gang is rolled through and like asked him his, his four riddles. They like send Blaine away again and sort of regroup and Eddie sort of has like an idea. Uh, Jake's not sure. And Roland says, okay, you guys think about this and I'm going to like pepper him with a bunch of, you know, uh, regular Roland historical questions. And, and so uh, they bring Blaine back and Jake's like kind of reminiscing and thinking about some of the past and like realizes that his hand doesn't hurt as much. Yeah. And then, you know, Blaine like kind of launches into this like almost uh tricorder esque Star Trek. Yeah. Um, like wow, actually, very I, advanced I, sex toy. <laughs> I've got some very special machines that can control your brain waves and fix your hand and so on. And then like after this long explanation, even gets a little bit like would you like your first sexual experience to be with one of my mental constructs? And this is where we we find out Blaine's like doesn't have everything because yeah. he names off uh, three or four characters from uh, Jake's time, like Marilyn Monroe, and and then one of them is a TV character, but not a real person. Like it was played by someone else. <laughs> and Jake actually stops for a second, and is like, "Well, wait a minute. Hey, that wasn't." um a hot lady in real life that was a regular looking lady and she was in a show but she was actually played by this actress and she looks more like my teacher than she does like a a sexual escapade from that time and and this moment you're like wait a minute what like he knew stuff from new york and and from jake's time but obviously he doesn't know he does everything not, he doesn't know everything he's missing a small grasp and this is the the first like well maybe the second chink we see in his armor right uh, where like the first one was his non-tolerance for uh eddie's jokes and the second one is that like wait a minute um he he maybe doesn't have all of the memory banks that we we think he has mm -hmm. and, and 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 so that's an interesting point there, but yeah. I want to stop before I I keep steamrolling forward. Rachel, do you have anything to add? I mean, I think that there's a kind of a nice moment here where Roland and Susanna like are on the same page instantly. Like we see them look at each other and they're like mistake. Um, yeah. Which to me it was like I said, there's a handful of these very subtle little character moments, and I was just like, oh. Roland and Susanna are on the same page. And I kind of feel like she is kind of becoming his right hand. Whereas like it used to be Eddie, but there is a special bond that is forming between them that we learn more about as the chapter goes on. But this was sort of our first little moment in this book about it. In addition to that there, and I went, we went past it, my fault. Um, where after Jake tells his riddle, she pulls him over and like holds him, gives him a hug. And they have this like sweet interaction where you can kind of see how their bond has evolved. Like there's sort of like a motherly or big sister vibe between them. And then in this moment where Roland was despairing and Jake asks like, what are we going to do? Eddie's immediately comes to like try to defend Jake 
and is like mentally telegraphing to Roland, don't say it, don't say it, don't say we're fucked, don't do it, don't do it. They all kind of try to caretake each other. Yes, and specifically Jake, and and one of the roles that I have come away from this these, this handful of moments that, that that Jake plays in the group is that he sort of elevates the group in a way, like he has become in some some ways the center, like the heart of the group, the center of the group, and they're all kind of parenting him to a certain degree, and uh and have created a family unit based around him, and it actually brings out the best and most like kindest, most empathetic side of them. And I think that he's going to kind of potentially, if this holds, will be sort of like the lubrication that keeps them all from like rubbing up against each other too hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it'll, it softens them. Very specific uh, metaphor there. Well, you know. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I, I just, there's, like I said, there's not a ton that really happens in this section, but there are little kind of, I think, sweet, subtle moments that tell us a lot about where we are emotionally as a group in this section and, and that centers around jake one question oh, before we move on okay so obviously we the reason that we had this whole scene where he like does the like do you want to have your first sexual experience or whatever is to allow him to make this mistake but like as a character blaine is he's gonna murder to him but them. he's also like why yes that is exactly my question what do you think that is about is it still just like the service side of him is it to show uh, I, off i don't know I think it's like, the why second do it? one so like when he mentions that he's like healed his hand he also is like and by the way you're enjoying the great quality of the barity class uh congratulations for reaching the uh <laughs> first class passengers <laughs> position uh we can also give you sescapades and escapades and five dollars <laughs> at the door for drinks you know it's like it's sort of this like weird <laughs> weird like he has a built-in sales pitch advertisement to get you into the upper class you know the the barony class of uh-huh. the cabin and, and wants to uh, elaborate that you are enjoying your travels mm-hmm. on blaine the pain and uh, to me I, it was it was less about him like juxtapositioning between um good and bad and more about like him ultimately being a service industry and Mm. like very proud of the services and technology that he can provide. Got it. So it was like a weird flex. Got it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. ah, here, have you ever seen someone make the best tiki drink you've ever had before? I just happen to have rum in my pocket. It's like, what? Whoa, really? Yeah. It's kind of like when he made the statue of Roland. Yeah, thirsty much? I don't know, probably. Mm, but I would like a tiki drink if that's actually on offer. I mean, I don't have any <laughs> rum at the house, but I Damn do love it! a tiki drink now and again. <laughs> uh, so, on this roller coaster ride of death, uh, I'm trying to think of some good metaphors here. <laughs> uh, Blaine decides that, you know what, guys? Um, I have an actual functional issue that I need to take care of. You know, I get far enough away from where we started, and I got to charge my batteries up for the the final descent. So I, I got to pull over anyway. Um, how about you check out this sweet-ass waterfall? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's a, that sounds nice, you know? And, like, so he pulls his old, uh, you know, cabin invisible thing again, and, mm-hmm. like, we get this crazy waterfall with hounds' faces and like glowing eyeballs and a little bit of terrorization and uh, uh, you know uh, 
they don't react quite the way that Blaine thinks they should. And he sort of gets upset about it. Well, I think he's punishing them for Jake laughing. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um. All right, so, so that makes more sense. And there's a little moment before we go where when he spurts, ta- spurts. first starts talking about the, the falls and what he's going to show them, something flashes in Jake's memory of his father and how the same tone that, that Blaine is using them as they're, he's about to show them the falls is one that his father would use before he would lose his shit on an employee. And I thought it was another, you can like file this under another, like the comparison of Jake's two fathers things where we have another unflattering story of Elmer, like screaming, red faced, losing his mind, just being an abusive bully. And you compare it to the commanding righteous anger that Roland just expressed with Blaine. This part a little bit, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on because okay. I took it differently. So I, I, I will let you take command on sure. those little subtle bits. Yeah. Uh, basically, and I apologize. I was on par up until right here. Yeah, you've been doing great. And then I get to here and I'm like, well, I remember the hounds and the, and the waterfall. But then I was also like working on removing a tree stump from my yard. Oh my God. (laughs) And then like, I remember, so um, if I remember correctly, uh, after this little moment, uh, Roland kind of sits down exasperated and confesses that he's like, he doesn't have a lot left uh, as, as far as, as um, riddles go. And they, they all kind of like realize that uh, uh, he, he doesn't got what it takes and uh, and of course jake kind of knows how far they are out from their uh final destination and like blaine's also kind of given him some time frame of how long they've got with this whole battery recharge thing and, and meanwhile uh we still have like a a sort of like in himself eddie thinking about mm-hmm. new york and like the history and and his riddles and so on and and we still haven't got that answer of what we're, we're we were originally expecting of like eddie getting the quiver in his arrow or or the uh you know the bullet for his gun his riddle gun yeah and the the gang just seems like a little bit down and out yeah they're in a bad way it, it really devolved quickly but to be fair there's this whole rundown that jake goes through of all the things that they ha- that has happened in the last day and you're like yeah, you'd be pretty freaking tired if your day started on that bridge, went through the TikTok man, went through like, or fighting their way through Lud, like all those things. At, you know, like they haven't even had dinner and they're already, de- you know, this is where they're I mean, at. they're in first class. Where's the delivery That's service? That's a very on, good question. Why are they not grubbing? They can like heal your hand, but they can't just like space food stuff There's gotta be some the... replicator Star Trek style mm-hmm. up in there, in, up in the Barony class. Or like, what are you even doing? But yeah, they're all in pretty bad shape but what i think is interesting about what's going on with eddie is he is kind of he's had this flashback to a memory that he can't quite put all the pieces together and the last time we had a scene just like that was outside the gate at the cradle where Susanna is unable to she knows that there is a memory there but she can't quite unlock it and so she needs roland to hypnotize her and to for Detta to come forward to provide this missing information. But Eddie refuses to ask Roland for help. 
So instead, what ends up happening is that there is sort of a parallel thing that happens where the voice of Henry returns and starts talking him through this. And he is sort of going into his own self-hypnotic state as he's trying to remember what exactly was said around this campfire. And he knows that it has something to do with Roland insulting him. So he's like compartmentalized it away. And going back to his previous trauma and his previous abuser, Henry may actually unlock whatever that is. So I thought that was an interesting comparison of those two scenes. Because he refuses to rely on Roland, he has to, it's taking longer, and he's also having to like find a way to go into sort of a hypnotic state on his own, which is why he's like dreamily talking to them and sitting there there with like his mouth agape um, while the rest of the people are screaming in horror at these hounds and the crashing sound of the falls well there's this a weird bit though like um eddie actually like self discusses that his brother only shows up in these certain circumstances and and then describes the pain of his brother and so on yeah Uh, is that not and i i'm just uh reaching here but is that not like a reflection again of roland and and maybe even Blaine being mean to him. Oh, I think that those things definitely were the catalyst. They put okay, him okay. in a very particular headspace. Is that okay? That yeah, help? yeah, that 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 works. I'll buy it. I'll buy that. So I just there there was a lot of times where like Eddie like reflects on his brother. Yeah. a lot through this section. Yeah, and, and like even through the earlier section, and it's like well. And then we have him being treated like the outcast at the party. Right. And it's like his brother always like blamed everything on him and told him he was a piece of crap and like mm-hmm. wasn't. And, you know, none of this would have happened if it weren't for you, you know, and I didn't do this thing for you. And like I was trying to piece those two together because his brother didn't treat him in the same disrespectful manner as these other folks. He treated him in a completely different yeah. disrespectful manner. And those two, I, I was trying to figure out how they jive together. It's that same sense of shame, I think. And, but different, like, uh, way of yeah. being angry at him about it or what he's yeah. angry about. Because, I, I mean, if, if you think about when he was whittling and how he would hide that It stuff, was a fear of, like, accomplishment of actually getting it right. And, and also it was like a, his, his brother would be like, oh, that's baby girly. stuff. Yep. And I think yeah. that there's – that a lot of that is still internalized in, in Eddie and it's made him a little bit raw when he gets when he gets made fun of in a particular way by someone that – begrudgingly respects like roland it probably really hurts and so it's that i mean hurt is hurt and so Mm. probably that's exactly the they put him in the right headspace for him to open it opened up the memory of another time that he was like mocked around the campfire by roland but one other thing so we breezed past the fall of the hounds they didn't really hit me very hard so i kind of just zoom zoomed past them i know it's important it's important you're like the shine police on our podcast like you always pick up on someone that has like a little bit of shine and there's this little brief moment where they're trying to like question who built the built the falls how do they harness the power all that stuff and eddie's just kind of like were they made by the great old ones or the people before the great old ones and were the people before the great old ones even people i was like oh oh." i might have to go back and revisit this little little nugget again because i did not get as much out of it as you did fair enough the other thing and because i i did some 
pre-homework because I thought maybe nice. you were going to ask me about it, was the symbolism behind hounds. <laughs> yes, uh, that is actually a question I had for you because, like, it's like, why why hounds? Like, that's a weird thing to have at the edge of a waterfall. Yeah, I mean, it looks cool. That's one thing. But, but also, hound? like, wouldn't you, like, do a wolf or, like, some uh, a bear or, you Something, know, right? Well, even a turtle mouth, like, that has water and a turtle yeah, lives in water. That's a good point. A hound is like a, you expect him to be in like a, a southern forest hunting down a guy in like a white and black striped suit, you know, <laughs> with a ball attached to his leg and running. Oh. And just... <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, I, I decided to go ahead and try to get ahead of your question because I, I could picture you being like, why hounds? And what I found is that hounds in Celtic tradition symbolize hunting, healing, and a couple of other things. But they are traditionally guardian animals, guardian, really, of roads and crossways, mm. and are believed to protect and guide lost souls in the other world. Then I just smell the dirt for criminals, like I'm used to. No, <laughs> all a- cartoons. Apparently, apparently, they don't just smell dirt. They also guide people through the other world. So I'm, I, I mean, to me, what stood out to me was the idea that it was a guardian of the crossways and roads. And this is the point where Ro- where um, Blaine has to stop and switch over from what you know, whatever. His main power to yes, his battery to ba- charge up power. Exactly, auxiliary. exactly. And so this is sort of like a crossroads for him. So it would make sense mm. that the hounds would be here as the guardians. Well, so when I hear hounds, I think of like floppy eared. Oh, like basset know. hounds? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, I think these are uh, more really, like, yeah, like big wolf like hell hounds. hounds. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's just when, when I got this, I'm like, oh, there's a cute like Dopey the dog yeah. with his mouth open and water coming out. Like how silly is that? You know, it's like, this no. is real strange. No, I think it's much more spookier. Okay. All right. right. So so the gang continues on. um, They're waiting on this charge. Blaine's like kind of giving them some time frames. And they've got this ominous roadmap because obviously Blaine doesn't have a face. And the roadmap has like a blinking light on it. And the bit here is like, that's not too far away. Topeka is like the next stop. And they got like, you know, 60 minutes or 80 minutes or something like that. I don't remember. But um, it's a very short amount of time. And like, they're like, well, wait a minute. Have we been on this route for, you know, eight hours or eight hours and 45 minutes? You know, it doesn't seem like it's been that long. And and this is where we find out that like Blaine is completely aware of what's going on in this world. (laughs) He's like, oh, dude, let me tell you, time works differently around here. right and you're like what and he's like oh yeah and like and so this is the part where like you start you stop and you think about that statement and you say wait a minute so blaine knows that those portals are through time and space that he's been traveling through over this time Mm -hmm. and like is completely aware that this trip even though it has a time frame and he's traveling really fast doesn't necessarily mean it's a linear trip that he's actually like cutting through it in and out of portals oh. on the way to this place. I hadn't thought of, I thought it was more that like the world is breaking down and t- like how Jake's watch wasn't working because time had broken and like the physics of the world were actually no, coming so apart because thinking... he does the thing about like te- like he talks about temporal something in the last book. Yeah, so think Before about it more like this. Something broke. So like, uh, Blaine used to be able to actually like be a train to take you to these other 
other worlds. Mm-hmm. And in those other worlds that he could take you to, he could take you to different times in those other worlds. And so he like basically by at least in, from my perspective by revealing that is saying that like this train trip from point A to point B wasn't through just one world. It was through several worlds and the time changes caused that to be a shorter distance than it would have if he was just traveling through the wastelands. Huh. And I, maybe I'm reaching. I, I, don't no, know. I mean, here's the thing is we know that he knows about other levels of the, the tower. tower. So yeah, I he's think mentioned you're not times. wrong that he is either capable of that or some other part of him is capable of that. But my takeaway was there's this whole thing about when Roland is talking about how he's been walking for 10 years. Oh, yeah. Because true. all the stuff has broken down. And Roland's probably like 100 years old because of the yeah. time frame that has elapsed during these times. And there's something that because I just I pulled up um, Wastelands and there's a part where they're looking at the map. He's talking about the distance between Blood and Topeka. And he says, we're going to follow the path of the beam. The total distance is just over 8,000 wheels or 7,000 miles if you prefer that unit of measure. It was once much less, but that was before all temporal synapses began to melt down. Yeah, and so... But shouldn't that me, make it longer? Well, no. So that's the thing is like that, that to me says that some of those temporal synapses or like time portals or whatever we're going to call them are still there and they've traveled through a few it of says, them. It says... What, and she says, what do you mean temporal synapses? And he laughs his last nasty laugh and won't answer the question. So maybe so you're we right. don't really get a definition. You're right. Like, maybe it could be that he's going through portals. I I, I think it's not really I, clear. Yeah, it could yeah. very well be. So I think that there are some breadcrumbs there that you could easily follow. Now, the other question I have for you, there's a, a moment where like, Blaine is describing the different levels of the tower. And when we left Ludd, you were also um, telling me that like you, you felt like the train was traveling on the beam. But specifically in the descriptions from Little Blaine and Blaine and Stephen King himself, they are now on a physical track mm-hmm. that raises and lowers in elevation and is close to the ground yeah. uh, enough to like knock things out and high enough above to get to where this like charging station is. A- and even little Blaine's comments about it aren't that it's a, you know, a beam they're traveling on, that it's a physical track. Yeah. No. Nope, and then right. I'm like, when he said beam, I'm like, well, maybe there's a floaty beamy thing that they're just like, Bloo. But then it doesn't make sense that there's a spot where the track no, can be gone totally and it can fall right. off, you know? Yeah. And so I've been, that one's like been stuck in my craw for okay. a little while. That's totally fair. Okay, okay. But yeah. I was wrong. You were right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that to me, like, again, reinforces my time travel theory is that, like, the track actually goes through portals that are still available and reemerges from those portals. And that's how they change time. Because, I mean, if you're spelling out how long a wheel is the distance and how long the train travels. And like, it's a very easy calculation to come up with. There's gotta be a reason why he's cut it short and made it seem as though they're going further and faster. Well, they're not increasing the speed actually. So they're, they're going through time. Interesting. And the only real explanation would be 
either uh the train itself is a got a flux capacitor in it or they're hitting some portals and the portals but, I mean, are like jake says he feels it slowed down yeah maybe like he talks about how you can't feel it when it's when it's going but he gets like pushed forward in his seat when it slows outside the hounds yeah but i i think too we've established the hounds are actually in in that universe so maybe they're crossing back from one portal to an yeah, i don't know could be yeah yeah well uh, listeners out there um <laughs> Feel free to completely debunk my rando theory on, oh, that's on the no time travel portals. I like I it. Mean, I like a conspiracy. Put on their tin hats. Join the parade. So, <laughs> so the gang like finds out that there's a little bit of possible time shenanigans going on, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, they're kind of at an impasse. Eddie still hasn't come up with an answer. Um, everybody's kind of like a little bit nervous, and they're looking at the dot on the screen. And the last thing we leave you with is the blue eyes of the scary, the apparently not 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 floppy eared and fun looking house. No, 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 scary ones. So there are a few quick things I want to touch on before we wrap up our review. First is one we started to talk to, and then I meant to come back to it and completely forgot was the idea that Roland is moving on. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, Susanna kind of, like, has an insight into that, right? And my first thought was, oh, no, not Roland's mind again. (laughs) Okay, so the first time it was, like, a temporal disruption, right? Again, we're talking about temporal stuff. This time it's, like, he just doesn't have the knowledge he had before. It's the nothing or something, (laughs) <laughs> are we are we gonna betray you this yes exact say my name sebastian so what do you t- what do you make of this this idea is it that we're, are we running out of time is it king trying to make roland more reliant on his quartet is it just like king himself feeling his own mortality and like roland is his proxy what do you think i thought during this like roland already knew he he didn't have what it took to get through this like because oh, so when Roland's weird. like, because he's like, you know, you you mentioned the face, the face flinch, but that's not it. Just it. Like Roland is like, here, I'll just give him a bunch of riddles from, you know, my day that I know will not stop him, but it may slow him down. Will you guys work on a, on an answer? Like Roland is basically alluded to earlier that he is not court. He is not a riddle master. He is a guy who has been forced to hear and understand and ingest a bunch of these riddles but he himself is not the creator or necessarily the like sole source of these and and we even get this in the description of the um the events like when roland's talking about the other riddle makers like he's not talking about them all as other sole geniuses coming up with new riddles a lot of them are mining old books old folks talking to like old riddle masters and bringing those to the table and court really was the one who you know won the giant turkey or bird or game hen or whatever it was uh, and is the like the new material and, and roland as a self-description uh from early on in the books is not that type of thinker 
And so to me, his complete self-doubt is probably hanging around the fact that he has a finite number of memorized riddles that he can stall with, but has a complete certainty that Blaine understands all of those riddles, especially since they're from a place that's kind of his win. Uh, and and there's no way that any of those are ever going to be the solution to beating Blaine. But why say that he has moved on? Doesn't that seem like something has changed? Maybe. No, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't have an answer for that, Rachel. Fair enough. <laughs> my my uh, answer was the the bewilderingly long description of Roland in, in court. So, well, I guess uh, I know I, what my next Facebook question is going to be. <laughs> what does this mean? I feel like there's something metaphysical. You're probably right. Uh, there's the idea of moved on, things have changed. But I think there's actually more to something. When they say the world has moved on, I think it's beyond that times have changed. Like, there is something that kind of links back to this idea that the world is coming apart at the seams Mm. and like spinning into entropy. And so that's why I'm wondering if there is, like I said, something more metaphysical happening with Blue and Roxanne is like, oh my God, you're moving on. There's a concept there that that I think that I don't know that I fully understand and how it, so I don't totally get how that applies to Roland. And I'm curious because I feel like it's important. I don't have an answer. Okay, I, I Fair think enough. we need to we need to crowdsource this one. All right, crowd, we're sourcing you. What the heck does it mean? This is send send your emails, hop on Facebook. I'm gonna put up a question because I need somebody else to weigh in on this. Oh, there's a moment where Susanna talks about her love for Roland that I was like, whoa, what's going on here? Because I feel like, and this is something that a criticism I had of the last book in general is that right away we're going like we're going into Susanna's head in this book and I'm not mad at it because we open our reading and I we close our reading in Susanna's point of view. And this is where she's like watching him and kind of coming to this realization of how much she loves him. It's like this, she describes it as a reluctant love. She doesn't really like him very much, but she like admires fears and pities him. The pity thing is weird to me, but okay. And I think that's great because if the last book was very Jake Roland Eddie heavy and I felt like I really understood their internal life I understood how they felt about the other characters and so it's it's actually really great to finally get some of that from Susanna and I think that's a this is a little bit of a course correction I'm very excited about this I don't mean obviously she's not going to pass a Bechtel death test anytime any soon but like since Odetta and Detta left the building we kind of had like internal silence from Susanna so I, I do appreciate that. Um, and I do appreciate that now I have a better understanding of her connection to Roland. Uh, she had some really badass moments in the last book, but I needed some of her internal life. And I felt that this section finally gave me some of that. And so that was very cool. And I think it's interesting that we never get any of Roland's point of view in these sections. Like, not once. I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, if he's moving on, maybe his his opinion doesn't matter. Oh. It's all... I don't know. Maybe yeah, not. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I, Tell us what you think, folks. Yes. We don't know. Yes. Yes. All right. So that is it for this week's reading, right? I think we got, we got everything, right? Like, Yeah. We, Roland's head into his kamikaze run. They got 60 minutes to figure this shit out. Um, and Roland is fresh out of riddles. So we'll pick up again for those of you at home who are reading along. We're reading chapters three, The Fair Day Goose, and chapter four, Topeka, for the next section. But before we move on, I forgot to ask you, my bad, overall thoughts on this chapter. Uh, uh, 
um, so I'm 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 never really excited when I've just finished a previous book and I get a recap of the entire yeah, previous book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that part was like a little weird. The section in general, like, there's some interesting stuff in it. And honestly, uh, we've spent way more time on it than I thought we could ever spend I know, on it. we always do so this. It's probably more interesting than I give it credit for. So, you know, I feel less that way after we've talked yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the fun of this, right? But I still am not like, this is not going to win any awards for the best Stephen King section ever. Like, uh, Blaine's sadistic, but like, it wasn't as. He's no TikTok it, man. Yeah, exactly. And, like, <laughs> a lot of that being missing was kind of like, well, you're just another bad guy doing bad stuff. Mm -hmm. And the train is cool, and the whole idea of first class is cool. I would have liked to see some expansion on, like, Blaine's super tech powers and, you know, uh, maybe a little bit more into, like, the crazy Blaineness. But instead, we kind of got, like, a pretty straightforward, here's some riddles, I beat you. Here's some more riddles, I beat you. Characters struggling, and it's the standard narrative up and down curve so not my favorite not horrible i agree it was okay it was not my favorite section either the edited rehash prologue was a little bit odd but like i said except for that i know that it served a very particular purpose in terms of bridging the gap between the public things serve the being they Rachel. do indeed sir i really liked the candleton section i thought that part was really strong yeah i wish that was longer too yeah I'm hoping I'm hoping that's where we're headed to is just like lots of awesome post-apocalyptic Western world. The rest of it felt a little bit like, you know, kind of spun its wheels a little bit. You know, like you said, lots of riddling. Spun its wheels yeah. On its train. Oh. Um Yeah. And and I felt like it lost some of the tension that it had at the end of the last book. Like it felt very dire when we wrapped up the the wastelands, and it feels weirdly less so not really sure why but yeah and i and i like i said i really like the renewed focus on susanna so so far i would say yeah it, it was okay i liked it wasn't bad wasn't my favorite I'm excited to see where this is going i'm ready to wrap it up with blaine i want to see the rest of the world i'm excited to see what is on the other end of this train ride all right cool so we already made our plans for the next episode we don't have any connections to stephen king universe this time no movie adaptation yet Fingers crossed. Someday we'll get some news. So that just takes us to listener feedback. We did get an email. And of course, I posed a question to the Facebook group. So quickly, let me read the email that we got from a listener by the name of Christopher. So he says, hey, guys, first off, fantastic show. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, I've read the Dark Tower series numerous times and was looking for a revisit of the series without having to actually sit there and read the books again. Then I came across your podcast. Very happy I did. Just finished listening to episode 36 of The Cast of Ka, and I was particularly taken by your conversation at the end of the podcast. Now, I do not have a Facebook account, and therefore I did not see the question you posted about what scene you would most like to see make it to the screen. Not sure if the question was specifically directed at scenes in book three or the entire series. Technically, it was book three, but who cares? I want to know. I still want to know your answer. But I've always thought that the gunslinger's battle in Tull, or even the events of all of his times put in Tull, would make for great cinema. Killing an entire town? thats It's not every day that that happens. The gunslinger backing through the town into, into the edge of the desert while emptying his gun into those chasing him, then reloading and repeating. An incredible scene. Yeah, I totally agree. 
as someone who definitely as someone who loves a good gunfight <laughs> i want like full like western gun kata you know <laughs> so i totally agree oh anyway just to add my two cents to let you know what a great job you guys are doing nice but um also very happy that the podcast is now on a regular schedule you're welcome <laughs> it helps me get my uh get my dark tower fix long days and pleasant nights christopher funny uh so i would say one thing like if you ever go back and watch some of the old uh, um clint eastwood films uh-huh. the uh like fistful of dollars uh-huh. and and uh especially those like r- the one where he paints the town red i, I forget which our favorite high plains drifter yeah, high plains drifter exactly like you could really see that mm-hmm. basically being like a mirror for his entire time like wiping out an entire town yes in like a beautiful like cinematic way that could have easily been turned into something uh, like a carnival yeah you know like a just a weird like 12 to 14 episode show that was beginning middle and end with the town's destruction yeah like you talking about like anime style yeah anime or even live action yeah. like um i don't know if you remember the visuals of carnival oh yeah totally like, i love that show but like imagine a combination of that and chernobyl <laughs> where oh like God. well you know chernobyl is like basically like beginning middle end no problem here you are here you are here's the whole story uh-huh. and like it's a wipeout story yeah and like now imagine that with roland like you know the his time with his girl like the bar scenes mm-hmm. the like the grass and then like things going sideways and yeah and then like two or three shows of epic battles before like r- the whole town is decimated and roland's just like riding off into the distance Ugh! so i want it come on universe with, like, you some owe us, music. universe give it to us <laughs> i totally uh, agree i would i that's the thing is i want whatever path eventually happens with the dark tower they need to figure out some way to get the gunslinger in i don't want to skip it i know it's like simple it's a simple story but i just think it is so fundamental to the story overall like even if you abbreviated it into like four or five episodes like we one of them could be toll and then, you know, but I, I, I want those scenes. I want to see the weird bird guy. I want to see the mutants under the, the mountain. And I definitely, definitely want to see Toll. You know what's going to happen is there's going to, Stephen King's going to pass away. And then they're no. going to have like a Stephen King renaissance. I mean, we're having you know. one right now. Oh, I know. But like his, his uh, work is so deep that you know they'll they'll run out of uh, marvel movies to make Jeez. and be like well um how about we tackle one of these really big ones because we haven't done a lord of the rings in a while yeah <laughs> then it'll finally be stephen let's King's all time. forget about the time we tried to turn the dark tower into a marvel movie but <laughs> that's another story all right so thank you so much christopher we love hearing from you guys if like christopher you want to send us something a little longer Drop us a line at the cast of Caw at zombiegirls.com. And if you just want to interact on a more like shorter basis, definitely join our Facebook group where we post a question before every episode. We want to get as much of you guys' voice into our show as possible. This time, the question is, now that we've spent some quote-unquote quality time with the suicidal choo-choo, who would you like to bring Blaine's voice to life in an, in if we were going to have it either a cartoon or a live action series? So do you want to go first or do we want to go start with the listeners? 
I mean, I briefly glanced at the Facebook page mm-hmm. and somebody already got it correctly. <laughs> like, there is no other choice. Uh, Mark Hamill oh, is <laughs> obviously the guy, and yeah. like the depth. And I don't know how much you guys watch cartoons out there, but the depth of Mark Hamill is amazing. It's amazing. Like, from the Batman series to like skips in right? uh, the regular show, yes. like just all over the damn place. Yeah. Like to the point that you don't even realize that it's Mark Hamill. And like that guy, like even though he's known for, for, uh, um, you know, being Luke, that is the least important character right. he's played. Yeah. You know, he's such an important voice actor. Mm-hmm. And, and for Blaine, like, especially like little Blaine mm-hmm. and regular Blaine and Blaine's like swings back and forth. Whoever put that in the Facebook group is completely correct. Uh, no more, no more answers are required. You win, <laughs> sir. You win. Well, he was the very first person mentioned. So I think we all can agree that that was a excellent choice. I, and I would, I would be delighted if it was Mark Campbell. But we did get some other suggestions that I thought were pretty great. So I'll start with, because you already talked about Tim's suggestion, Mark Hamill. He actually had a handful of suggestions that I think are interesting for various different reasons. Mark- nope, the rest of them are all wrong. It's Mark Hamill, that is, period. I mean, correct. <laughs> the correct answer is Mark Hamill. But let's just, like, go on a different level of the tower and see who is doing the voice there. So he also suggested Tom Hendelston, both him and Mark Hamill, because they can do the range from jovial to charming to sinister and lethal. Correct. Absolutely. Especially in the case of Mark Hamill. He also suggested, just because he likes the voiceover acting of this particular actor, he's done yeah, a I ton remember of him from a couple of kids' shows, but I don't remember him in a lot of other stuff. So, uh... yeah, he's done quite a bit of voice acting. He's someone who could do the wacky side of Blaine very easily. So this... I didn't realize he was in so many episodes of uh, Rick and Morty. Uh huh. Huh. Yeah, Alan Tiddick is everywhere. He's another really great option. Okay, so Aaron suggested, and he said, hear me out because I'm serious, David Cross. David Cross? Yeah. So really, I, I said, tell me more because I needed okay. to hear more. And he said he's great at shifting between calm and rational to absurd and silly, maniacal and threatening. But does David Cross really have the like up-down range? Because David Cross is like david cross but like loud and quiet yeah i don't <laughs> like i mean like i don't know that i've heard he, him sinister but i mean he could do the other parts of it mr show does not provide me with a david cross warm fuzzy feeling in that he has a, a giant range he just mm-hmm. has various degrees of david cross somebody else suggested that maybe it would be like a david cross bob odenkirk duo oh one for the main one for the like baby blame yeah yeah, that would, that would, I think that would work. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. So Gigi suggested someone who I also think could be pretty cool, Peter Cullen, voice of Optimus Prime. Hmm. Peter, now Peter Cullen has, is like the most accomplished voice actor. He is in absolutely freaking everything. I mean, Fred and Scooby, is that a, no, maybe? No, uh, maybe. I'm thinking Frank Welker. Well, I know uh, uh, yeah, Alan he's, he's, is um, in Scooby-Doo. He's, he's Megatron. Okay, so she thinks Optimus Prime. I, this whole time, I've been thinking Frank Welker. But mm-hmm. Peter Cullen, I mean, he has like a like the vibrato kind of voice that could probably be like when Blaine is being very stuck up. But I feel like Peter, also Frank Welker would be really good. Hmm. 
Craig suggested. Now, he has an interesting choice. This is not something that would have occurred to me, but I do kind of like it. His dream production would be multiple voice actors. What really hit it home for him was all of our talk about how Blaine calls himself his own quartet. So his suggestion would be Gilbert Gottfried, <laughs> Bobcat Goldthwait, okay, I'm in. Jerry Seinfeld, okay, etc., who could add a very eerie quality, like there could be funny parts where they're doing different voices, and then they could all overlap their voices. Yeah. That would be yeah, crazy. I, I think that would be a really interesting, the, the only issue I have is that like, Blaine doesn't expand out into too many more characters during this time, so the sad part would be that we wouldn't, We'd almost have to make up a couple more just to get right. all of those guys in. Because, like, once you start naming those, it's like, well, of course I want some Gilbert Godfrey in here. Right. What, what, what is he going to do? Uh, he oh, said man. either that or Kelsey Grammer, who I think also has a really great voice. Yeah, Kelsey Grammer's, like, got a classic yeah. voiceover voice. And you could picture him being like, Mr. I run the barony train, blah, blah, this blah. This is the best class here. Uh, you notice your hand is fixed. Would you like a sexual escapade? Oh, <laughs> gross. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay, so Ryan suggested, now this is just, speaks to, because this is my fandom right here. He suggests John Benjamin and Chris Parnell for Blaine and Baby Bane. Blaine. Hmm. Did you watch Archer? I did watch okay, Archer. Okay, so it'd be Archer and Cyril. Yeah, uh, I don't know about – so the dude that played Coach McGurk yes! who was also Archer. Yes, John like, Benjamin, yes. I think he's great, but I don't know that he, again, like, he is a David Cross to me. Like, yeah. his range is just Coach McGurk at different <laughs> intervals. Like, I mean, you can even take him back to, like, Mr. Katz. Like, or Bob, it, Bob's Burger. Yeah, <laughs> it, Bob's Burger, like – they're like yeah they they gussy him up but the voice itself never ever goes anywhere new it's always it's always john, the same yeah. i mean he he definitely has the john benjamin corner of the market corner like yeah exactly <laughs> but like that's it like and, and... all right so caitlin suggests r.i.p robin williams is my is blaine in my head and i mean if he were still amongst us he would be an excellent choice because he can be so scary so many things and all the voices he would do and if you like talk about expanding the stuff that that blaine would say and the voices he would do like there was no controlling robin williams robin williams is, is actually like the most versatile voice actor of our time yeah yeah he could do it definitely like if he were still it, with us i think him and mark hamill would be like neck and neck. all right finally ryan has another r.i.p suggestion that i would be super into which is alan rickman if he could choose anybody alan rickman I don't so alan know. rickman was you would know him either as the villain from die hard professor snape by grabthar's hammer oh yeah 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 um in uh, galaxy quest yes he has that very theatrical British voice that I could totally see doing. I didn't know he was dead. Yeah, he died a couple few years ago now. Um, cancer. Yeah, very sad. Um, but mm. so he said specifically he wants it, or Tim said only if he does his American accent from Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> when, like when he's pretending. Well, I don't want to spoil Die Hard for people. <laughs> uh yeah okay so that just leaves our selection these were really great i feel like people really came through with blaine blaine clearly is amused because people had some really great ideas and because i didn't want to just say what they said i had to really think outside the box so i have a couple suggestions aside from mark hamill is there anybody else that you would suggest for blaine no no i mean (laughs) 
if you wanted me to just like be a turd and suggest something horrible, I I would say like let's ruin him and use Jeff Fox. <laughs> oh like my god! No. But that's not because I think it would you be good. You might be that's a suicidal because... train if. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just if you really wanted to just ruin the character, but I, I'm completely sold on Mark Hamill, yeah. so I got nothing else. Okay, well I had a couple other suggestions. I tried to pick people who have comedy chops, but also can convey like a quiet menace and the two people i came up with were michael keaton okay particularly i was thinking about that scene in spider-man where he's like looking in the rearview mirror at peter parker and he's talking to him and talking about prom but underneath the words you're just like oh my god danger 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 and also oh, Michael sorry Michael Keaton like Batman and all that business like he's yeah. got a lot of range yeah, absolutely and he started off as a comedic actor I mean like he was Mr. Mom so like he could do all the things the other person I picked was John Lithgow hmm really yes he you know is known largely as a comedic actor but his career he started out as a villain and like the season where he's the serial killer and dexter he's absolutely terrifying i mean he was the bad guy in buckaroo bonsai yes that did true. a pretty good job and but... raising Kane, like he's he plays a villain in a way that like he does that thing where he's so disarming so that when it turns cold it feels so it's that, well it's that laugh like yeah. john lifkow can laugh either like in a charming way or in a like we're <laughs> like, about to see your insides kind of way yeah 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 so those are my two blains because everybody else did such a great job of picking people that you guys made it really hard for me <laughs> but i'm not complaining i actually love it thank you everybody who participated we love your input you guys are great again if you want to reach us drop us a line at castofcallatzombiegirls.com or come over and join the Facebook group, you can come over there and chat all things Dark Tower with us and answer these questions as they come up. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. DJ, that just leaves where people in the next two weeks are just like, oh my God, I need some more DJ. I need to hear that voice. Where can they find you on the internet? Um, well, guys, I guess uh, there are new episodes of the Splattercast yeah. occasionally available, so you can go check that out. Um, also, uh, there are links that are posted on Deadliner.com to get to our editing sessions. If you want to listen to me for eight hours Woo! at a time editing our feature-length films, uh, we are available in the chat and in the audios. Other than that, I think my Etsy store is completely sold out right now. Amazing. And I need to get back to work making some more stuff. Congratulations, and, uh, dude. Yeah, so, uh, but otherwise, that's it. You hear me here and otherwise pretty much nowhere else. So <laughs> what about you, Rachel? You're more popular and more uh, prolific than I am. Where, where are you being heard oh, these days? Oh, my goodness. Oh, yes. You know me. I'm all over the internet. <laughs> Quarantine has made me quite the podcaster. Uh, you can find me reviewing horror films from a feminist perspective on The Zombie Girls. Uh, you can check me and my friend Mars reviewing horror films that you can stream on streaming services on The Stream Queens. And if you want to talk more about horror movies specifically directed by women with a theme song created by the one and only DJ, check out the More Deadly podcast. Um, if that isn't enough of me for you, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I, it's too much me for me. <laughs> so that should satisfy any need that you have. All right, DJ, take us out. Listen, dear listeners, 
I just wanted to keep this train on the tracks oh, and let you no. know that Tubi is a thing that we've been really enjoying lately with lots of weird stuff. It has nothing to do specifically with this podcast or anything else. But, man, if you want to dive into some weird stuff, Tubi is where it's at right now. And it is available on your Roku. I do not get paid for them. And I just wanted to point that out to everybody because, man, I found some crazy Blue Moon stuff like RoboJocks and, like, all the way back to uh, that space alien uh, opera with the with the cowboys. I, I cannot say enough weird things about Tubi. Not good things, not bad things, just weird things. So, Tubi, <laughs> if you're not watching uh, other things go check that out because this is a rabbit hole just type in a letter and you'll find something so strange and bizarre like samurai cop that you can enjoy for yourself today and that is it rachel i know that's not the normal outage i don't, I don't care. Normally I like pro- it provide a thing but wow Tubi, that's a thing <laughs> bye everybody bye <laughs>